And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for another opportunity to come and break the bread of life. The psalmist said it was, he loved it more than his necessary food. And may that be true of us, Lord. May we love your word more than our necessary food. Because by it, your servants are warned. By it, we are encouraged. By it, we are redeemed. And by it, you are glorified in our obedience and trust in what you have said and what you have promised and what you have forbidden. Well, Father, praise you for this life, the life of joy that comes from living in obedience to your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us, teach us this morning how to do a better job at that for your glory and for our own joy. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are still in 1 Timothy 6, and um, moving right along here toward the end in the next few weeks. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the subject of sanctification. Uh, The word sanctification is a big word, I understand, And it's not one that we throw around each other very often, unless you're talking about discipleship or unless you're in that kind of a relationship, which I hope you are. Maybe sanctification is a common term. I hope it becomes more common at Calvary Bible Church. I personally believe that sanctification is kind of the missing doctrine in local churches. We're not serious about sanctification, but Paul was serious about it, and Paul wanted Timothy to be serious about it. The word sanctification comes from the Latin sanctus, which just means holy. Sanctification is all about growing in holiness, or you could say it's all about growing in Christ-likeness, or simply growing in spiritual maturity. I mean, if you're a child of God, you want to grow, right? I hope you can look back over the last year and say, a year ago, I wasn't as mature in certain areas as I am now. There has been change, discernible change. Paul told Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. And so I hope your progress is evident to those who are closest to you and those who are your friends outside of this church. Sanctification is all about practical spiritual growth. To study sanctification is to study practical theology. It is taking the word of God and bringing it to bear on the practical issues of life. It's all about participating in the Holy Spirit's work of transforming our lives and character from what they were when we lived exclusively for ourselves into what God is making us to be by the Spirit and the Word. Here in Paul's first letter to Timothy, the apostle is concerned not only for the church to whom Timothy is ministering, but for Timothy himself. Yes, he had been sent to the church of Ephesus to fix some things. There were some really significant problems, and I won't rehearse all of them. You've been hearing about them for, I don't know, 30 messages or so. His mandate was to deal with the false teachers and to correct various sins and misdemeanors in the church. But most importantly, Paul was concerned about his young protege, Timothy. And throughout this book, this little letter, we find him again and again telling Timothy, be concerned about yourself, not just them. Be concerned about yourself. And in passages like the one today, you can hear, you can kind of feel Paul's concern for Timothy himself. Timothy was sent to this church not merely to tell them what God expects of them, but to show them and to model what God expects from them in in relation to the Christian life. As Prof. Hendricks used to tell us in seminary, Christianity is always better caught than taught. Uh, We have found this even in, in, in our home. Uh, Praise the Lord, Chris and I both came into this marriage as believers. And early on, it just seems like some of the battles early on with raising our children were fought in one, and then the children in our home, the older children, helped the younger children understand what living a Christian life is all about. It is, in one respect, better caught than taught. 
And Paul understood that. That's certainly not a biblical statement, but it certainly communicates biblical truth. Every time Paul says that you should, that we should identify people worthy of emulating, worthy of, uh, of following, we should mark them. And I'm a big believer in heroes. We should have our spiritual heroes who are gone before us. They're the shining lights ahead of us. We should have people, both dead and alive. I find most of the time the dead ones are the best ones. But people who have gone before us who really, really strove to please the Lord in every area of their lives and made a difference for the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul is calling Timothy to. Timothy was to be a model of the Christian man who is growing in Christ and a living example of what it means to live faithfully in the household of God. We know Paul wanted Timothy to model the Christian life because he says so. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says this, Let no one despise you for your youth, but, here we go, set the believers an example, or be a model for them in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And you know what? That's what we're supposed to do for each other. We're to strive to be a model of speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Not just for our wives, not just for our children, not just for your husbands, but for your neighbors and your coworkers and everyone else. Of course, the relevance for you and me in this passage is is, uh, that what God desires of Timothy, God also desires of us. It's not enough to thump the Bible in our homes and say, thus saith the Lord. Um... We, especially us men, are to model what it means to love God's word. We should be found reading God's word. We should be found thinking about God's word, meditating on God's word. It's not do as I say and not as I do. It's more like follow me as I'm following Christ. That's the kind of ministry that the Apostle Paul wants for us. It's the kind of ministry that we see here that he wanted Timothy to have in the church of Ephesus. I want to show that to you this morning in specifics, but let's stand together and we'll read this passage before we dive into it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 15. I confess I got so wrapped up in this text this week that we will not make it to verse 15, but... uh, and that's okay. Let's, let's begin in chapter 6 and verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is the testimony, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Let's just go ahead and read the rest of this section. This doxology, verse 15 which he would display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I really want to reserve a whole sermon just to walk through that doxology and think about the attributes of God. And so I'm trying to pace this right so we land in the right place at the right time. The passage before us offers, I think, three commands. In fact, I I know there are three commands because in the Greek it's obvious. Three commands that help us kind of map out in simple terms how God wants us to pursue growth in Christ. And um, before I mention the three points, let me throw in a caveat here. There is no way possible to reduce sanctification to three points. And we should never reduce it to a slogan. Not let go and let God, although there are appropriate times to do that, right? Not Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
There's lots of truth there. That is not the totality of sanctification. Not obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Does it cover everything that's involved in sanctification? No. We've got to be so careful that we don't reduce this massive and glorious and hope-giving doctrine into a bumper sticker. Although that's what I'm going to do this morning. <laughs> but I just want you to understand that these are three things. They're coming out of this text. If I were to, to go over sanctification and all of its elements, we would never get through a single sermon. And that's not the way Paul presents it. We just need to understand Paul is presenting this piece of the puzzle here and not trying to feed us the whole bale. He's not trying to give us the entire puzzle and all of its pieces in this text. Does that make sense? Maybe I'm stressing this too much. But I just, I just want to be clear on the issue of sanctification because there's been so much confusion about sanctification in the last, I don't know, five or six years that we just need to be exceptionally careful about this doctrine. So I don't want you to hear me say sanctification can be reduced down to three words. It cannot. But these are the three words that are in this text. And so we want to focus on them. So the passage before us offers three commands that will help us map out uh, a, a simple plan for pursuing growth in Christ. We can abbreviate these in uh, three words. Flee, follow, fight. Flee, follow, fight. Flee from, from sin, follow virtue, and fight for faith. Flee from sin, follow virtue, and fight for faith. Let's look at the first one. Flee temptation. Uh, notice in verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, first thing we really need to notice here is how Paul refers to Timothy, because this is very unique. He calls him man of God. And you can hear the passion in his voice. Oh, man of God. Oh, Timothy, pay attention. You man of God. As for you, oh, man of God. The moniker man of God was used in a number of famous characters in the Old Testament. A number of people, and in one case, even an angel, probably the angel of the Lord. It was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ are called man of God. Moses, for example, when he uh, represented God before the people and led them out of bondage, is, and Jesus would point back to that as, as kind of a, a metaphor for our salvation. The angel of the Lord, as I mentioned in Jude 13, I'm sorry, Judges 13, who appeared to the parents of Samson, and also he was called the man of God, Various prophets in the Old Testament, such as Samuel and Shemaiah and Elijah and Elisha and even King David were also referred to as men of God. In the New Testament, there is one reference uh, from Peter in, um, in Peter's first letter where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he, he talked about men who, by inspiration, wrote the texts of Scripture and he calls those men Man of God. And in all of these cases, man of God is used to indicate a person who was especially sent by God to deliver his message to the people. In the New Testament, there is only one instance where a man is named and called man of God. And that instance is right here in these two verses, in this one verse, and only Timothy. Timothy is the only New Testament individual singled out to be called man of God. Now that's interesting to me. What is Paul doing? Timothy wasn't an apostle. Why was he doing this? Well, clearly there are parallels between Timothy's ministry and the ministry of the Old Testament prophets uh, and the ministry of those who were apostles that Peter refers to. What was his ministry? His ministry was to bring God's word, to get God's word and to bring it, to serve it, to deliver it to the people. And furthermore, I think uh, Paul used this term to encourage Timothy. Timothy, um, God has given you a very difficult job to do. I have assigned to you the, God that, the, the job that God wants you to do, and I understand it's a difficult one, but you're in good company. So it was for all the prophets 
And so it is for the apostles. And so it is for you. And so, Timothy, I just want you to know, as far as I'm concerned, all these people, men of God, you are a man of God. You have been charged to deliver God's message. You get the privilege of sacrificing and seeing both the negative and the positive results of being God's messenger. No less than Moses, no less than Elijah in this respect, and no less than me. I'm simply a mailman. I've been given a message to deliver, and I've given that message to you to, for you to take to Ephesus and deliver it, you man of God. In one sense, this is a technical term, and it's a technical term used of all who have been given this calling, this ministry. And yet, in a more general sense, and on, on, on the outer reaches of the um, applicational range here, it would be for all of us. All of us. Because all of us are, desi- are, are called by God not only to receive the message, but to deliver the message. And we know that all the way from back in Deuteronomy 6, right? We're supposed to deliver the message to who? According to Deuteronomy 6. Our children. Our children. And that means it's not just the men, it's the women as well. To our neighbors, to anyone who comes to you for counsel and asks you for help, you deliver God's message. And, and sure, more than half the time, they're going to reject it. But, but your job is to be faithful. And my job is to be faithful. And Timothy's job was simply to be faithful to minister the word of God. And now notice the opening phrase in verse 12. Or verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, the word but here is a strong adversative delineating a clear contrast between Timothy and the false teachers. They were men of the world. They were men of philosophy. They were men of indulgence. But you, Timothy, you are a man of God. You are a man of God. And that brings us to the first key word in our outline here, flee. Paul says, but as for you, man of God, run for your life. Flee these things. Now, what things is Paul referring to? Well, uh, it might be argued that he's calling Timothy to flee all of the sinful behavior specified in the letter since chapter 1. At the very least, he was calling attention to the sins already mentioned here in chapter 6, and they are numerous. But the principle for you and me is simple and clear. If you want to grow in godliness, you must flee from sin. And beloved, that's a message we need to hear. It's not just reading your Bible, although that's critical, right? We're talking about all the, the other components of sanctification. He's not covering them all here. But reading the scriptures and prayer and fellowship and putting yourself under all the means of grace, yes, all of that is necessary. But if you do all of that and fail to flee from sin, you will not be a man of God. I'm not saying you won't be saved. I'm saying you won't be living up to the calling by which you have been called. The principle is, if you want to grow in godliness, you must flee. You must flee temptation. You must flee sin. Flee is a present active imperative in the Greek. In other words, it's a strong command. It really can't get any stronger than present active imperative. It is a strong command. In the Greek, the word is fuge, flee, fuge. It is the same word from which we get our English fugitive. Someone who is on the run. It literally means to seek safety in flight. You're literally running for your life. This is basic to the Christian life. It's basic because it's impossible to grow in godliness if you're playing fast and loose with sin. If you're fooling around with temptation. Right? I mean, if you want to lose weight... You don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry and walk down the chips and cookies aisle. That's just flirting with temptation. And we laugh about that because it's a very, very minor thing in the scheme of, of, of things in life and temptation, right? 
doesn't necessarily mean there's sin there. But there are other areas of our lives where we ask ourselves this question, how close can I get? How close can I get? And Paul's saying, are you kidding? Flee. Run for your life. Don't play fast and loose with temptation. Don't put yourself in a situation where you know you're going to be tempted. From time to time, a young man will come and confess to me that he's having doubts about his salvation. And my first question to him is, is there any known sin in your life that you are not repenting of? And frankly, nine times out of ten, the answer is, well, yes. And it's something maybe no one else knows about. Well, of course you're having doubts about your salvation. Of course you're having doubts. Because you cannot serve God and whatever that is. You can't worship God and whatever that thing is. You see, beloved, being forgiven by God, being justified by grace, is not to be confused with a license to do as we please. I've told you before, there's a popular song these days that says, um, on the days I lose the battle, grace reminds me it don't matter. It does matter. It matters to God. It matters to God. God hates sin, and we should hate sin. I mean, you don't, I want to be careful with this, but you don't necessarily need the scriptures to tell you how bad sin is. You just already, you've already experienced the consequences of it. That's why I often pray, Lord, for my children, lead them not into temptation. Don't lead them into temptation, Lord. Just expose the sin that's already there. That'll be enough. If they can see it for what it really is, that'll be enough. It'll be enough. As Paul said in verse 9, those who fool around with sin will eventually find themselves caught in a snare from which they cannot escape and find themselves plunged into ruin and destruction. In that case, Paul was warning about the love of money. But that's not the only sin to run away from. 1 Corinthians 6.18, God warns through the Apostle Paul, flee sexual immorality. Flee, same word, sexual immorality. Run for your life from sexual immorality. In our day, I would dare say that the biggest, most pervasive and destructive sin in in the American culture is immorality, sexual immorality. In fact, nine times out of ten, when a man calls the church to set up counseling for himself alone, it's almost assumed that one of the issues, maybe the dominant issue, is going to be some addiction to pornography. It's that pervasive. It's interesting, when I was over in Russia, it wasn't quite that way. Terry Enns and I kept talking about you know, cases that, that, uh, 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 where this kind of thing was in play. And one of the brothers said, uh, so is everything you counsel sexual sin? And we kind of looked at each other and went, wow, I think there's a bit of a difference between the sin that they struggle with and the sin that our country, the American church here, struggles with. Let there be no mistake, they struggle with serious sin. But in sexual sin, America, the American church, is inundated. It's saturated with sexual sin. And our culture even more so, obviously. In our day, I believe this is the dragon that's killing the church. Man of God, you must flee from sexual immorality in all its forms. And by all means, ask for help if you can't do it alone. Pride added on top of sexual, uh, um, uh, sexual sin just makes it worse. It just locks you in, and it really does become what Paul said back in verse 10, that it will become a snare and it will ruin you. Don't let that happen. Don't let pride keep you in that snare. And then in 2 Timothy 2.22, you can flip the page to the right. We're in 1 Timothy 6. Look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Paul says, flee youthful passion. And I think in that case, he's not talking about sexual immorality necessarily. He's talking about youthful passion, perhaps, in uh, rebelling against the authority or trying to take the place of the spiritual authorities that are in your life or disregarding them. Flee that kind of youthful passion. Flee that sense of, I know how to live my life and I don't need anyone to tell me otherwise. 
And there's more. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. The apostle says, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. An idol is anything you love, adore, sacrifice for, or delight in more than or in place of God. What do you do when you ought to, what do you love to do when you ought to be fellowshipping with Christ? That's a good place to start. Asking yourself or helping yourself identify if you have an idol. What is it that you tend to do when you know you ought to be fellowshipping with Christ? Flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. Don't accommodate those sins. Run from them. Do what Joseph did in Genesis chapter 39 when, he, when his master Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He didn't stand there and strategize about how close he could get to her without actually committing sexual sin. No, he left his cloak behind. Evidence, right, that she would use against him and have him thrown in jail. He left his cloak behind and ran for his life. That's the kind of urgency Paul has here. Flee, fuge, be a fugitive relative to running from sin. Run for your life. The specific sin on Paul's mind here in 1 Timothy 6, again, is the love of money. But no matter what the sin may be, no matter what the temptation, the man or the woman of God must actively and decisively flee from it. That means, you know, be real practical here. That means if you have internet, especially if there are males in your home, there should be some kind of, some kind of electronic fence up. You know, we have a, an invisible fence for my dog. And you know what? There are borders on our property that he will not go near. Amen. Uh, and we demonstrated that last night. We had some, some folks came by, and our dog ran outside, and I walked down my driveway, and my dog followed me only so far. And when I crossed a line, he stopped. And they were saying, wow, look at that. The dog's not running away. I said, well, there's a reason for that. It's called pain. <laughs> and he's experienced that so many times, he doesn't even wear the collar anymore. He just knows where the boundaries are, and he doesn't... He doesn't move them, but you know what? Having the fence helps. And having an electronic fence in your home relative to keeping certain things from the internet that are trying to get into your life. It used to be they were passive. They were just out there. You had to go looking for them. Now they're coming at you. Virtually every email, every, everything coming in from the internet. And if you don't have a fence up to keep that out... Um, then you're just, you're not fleeing. You're not fleeing. If you struggle with any kind of sexual lust and you're letting that into your home without offense, you're not fleeing. You're, you're, you're playing fast and loose with temptation. And it's so dangerous. Now, even with the fence, um, you still have your heart. And that means even with all of the fences up and every, you go live in a cave somewhere where you don't get internet service, and you will have your heart with you. So no electronic device can cure that. Only your relationship with Christ can cure that. And that's really the heart of it. Number two, flee from sin. Secondly, follow righteousness or follow virtue. Again, we see this in verse 11, the word Paul uses for pursue in the NAS, and I think here in the ESV as well, pursue and then he gives a list of virtues. There are things God wants a man to run from, and there are things God wants the man of God to run to. And so when we're talking about sanctification, a lot of pieces to the puzzle in understanding the full doctrine of sanctification, but one of them is you must flee sin, but fleeing sin isn't enough. You must pursue or follow righteousness and holiness and these things here that are reminiscent of the fruit of the Spirit. The word pursue means to follow in haste after. It means to hunt or pursue. There is this, there is this tone of this word that indicates you are actively engaged, just as you are actively engaged in running from temptation and sin, you are actively engaged in pursuing righteousness and holiness and spiritual virtue. Follow after in haste. 
Once again, this is a present active imperative in the Greek. It is a very strong command. It is not a suggestion. You know, my suggestion would be, hey, uh, get, a, get a router, get clean router or something in your home that would help you put a fence up to help you protect yourself to flee from immorality. But you know what? That's not a command from Scripture. Not a command from Scripture. This is a command from Scripture. However you do it, flee Flee from temptation, but don't just flee. Also, run toward righteousness. Run toward righteousness. It will be little help in your pursuit of godliness if all you do is run from sin. You'll just run from one sin, one temptation, into another. We must also run to the Christian virtues that the Spirit of God desires to produce in us and is producing in us. In his letter to the Ephesians and to Another letter to the Colossians, Paul used the more familiar paradigm of putting off and putting on. He's saying the same thing here. He's just using different terms. He's being fresh, as they would say. For example, in Ephesians 4, he teaches Christians who struggle with the sin of lying. What should they do? Well, they should put off or run from lying and begin speaking the truth to everyone around them. Run from that temptation. Run to its, its alternate. Replace, here's another way to say it, this is the replacement principle. Replace the sin of lying with the discipline, the spiritual discipline and virtue of speaking the truth. Speaking the truth. And he would even modify that a little, speak the truth in love. Um, they should put off and put on. Likewise, the one tempted to steal, maybe, maybe grew up poor, maybe grew up as a slave, tempted to steal, now he's a believer. Paul's saying, stop stealing. You have the church now. If necessary, through the church, your needs will be provided. Stop stealing. Okay, well, he's got a whole lifetime of stealing. When he's hungry, he steals something. Stop stealing. What does he mean? Run from the temptation. Run from it. And, but that's not all. Run toward righteousness. What does that mean? It means get a job. <laughs> Don't just stop stealing. How do you know a thief? How do you know when a thief has stopped being a thief? You might say, well, when he stopped stealing. How do you know he's not just between jobs? He's left your house. He's going to the neighbor's house. Before he gets to the neighbor's house, has he stopped being a thief? No, he's still a thief. He's just on his way to the next house. He just looks normal like everybody else. When he gets into the neighbor's house, he's a thief again. Paul's saying, look, that's, that's not it. That's not it. Don't stop for a little while. Stop permanently. And here's how you stop permanently. Get a job. And not only get a job, but start sharing your newfound wealth from your job. Start sharing with people in need. Or to simplify, stop stealing, start sharing. Do whatever you need to take, whatever you need to do to get there. Stop stealing, run from stealing, and run toward meeting other people's needs. And this, you could read through uh, the rest of Ephesians chapter 4 and see issue after issue after issue where Paul talks very practically about these things. When is a liar no longer a liar? When he stops lying and begins consistently telling the truth. When is a thief no longer a thief? When he stops stealing and he finds a job and starts sharing with others who are in need. In 2 Timothy 2.22, that passage perhaps you're still open to, I, I pointed to it a minute ago, it says, flee youthful lust. But then the rest of the verse, Paul goes on to command this, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It's the same thing that he's saying here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And he does the same thing here in 6.11. Paul says, flee from the love of money and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, or in the NAS it says perseverance and gentleness. Uh, are you a harsh person? Um, I think that's the implication here. Is that a sin, being harsh? Put off, run from, flee from that sin. And as you're doing that, put something in its place, namely gentleness. Practice gentleness. Why does Paul highlight 
such a list of virtues? I think because they stand in stark contrast to the vices that are evident in the lives of the false teachers. This is all contextual. This all wraps back in or folds back into the context. Look at verses 4 and 5 in chapter 6. He's talking about the false teacher, and here's how he describes him. Verse 4, this is 1 Timothy 6, 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He's willfully ignorant. He is an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. How do you like that list of characteristics? Those character qualities are diametrically opposed to the character of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit. And so the man of God should flee from them and follow or pursue that character of Christ. As Proverbs 15, uh, verse 9 teaches us, God loves those who pursue righteousness. Now, Paul would throw in a blessed caveat in the book of Ephesians, and he would say, it's not as though I've attained. I'm not saying I've arrived. I'm not there. But I press on. It's not about perfection. It's about what? Direction. God doesn't expect you to be perfect, but he expects you to be growing. Are you growing? Are you growing into the character of Christ? You will if by grace, by the power of grace in your life, you flee temptation and follow after the virtues, the characteristics of Christ. And that brings us to the third imperative We were to flee sin, follow righteousness, follow the Christian virtues. And third, we were to fight for faith. Fight for faith. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. The word fight here, interesting word, agonizomai, It is the word from which we get our English agonize. It means to take part in a violent struggle. It was usually used for being a participant in a a challenging contest. It was a contest Timothy entered, by the way, beginning at his baptism and public confession of Christ. Paul points to this in the next line where he says, "'Take hold of the eternal life.'" to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's talking about his baptism. Baptism in the first century was very similar to what we do at Calvary Bible Church here. It's not just a ritual where you get in the water and somebody dunks you and you walk out and you're done. No. When baptism came, it was actually more robust than what we do here. Uh, They would actually call the, the church to fast and pray before baptism. Oh, they took it so seriously. This was the persecuted church. And they took everything seriously. If you couldn't just casually decide, well, you know, looks like Christianity might be better. It looks like there's some you know, people there that I could be friends with. Okay, I'll become a Christian. No, no, no. If you're going to become a Christian in those days, you better pledge your head to heaven because you may lose it. And by the way, it's the same thing in Uganda, right? Uh, when I took Damon down there the first time, him and I went and we, uh, we bought Shannon this little kiddie swimming pool so they could do baptisms in it. And they filled it up with water, as dirtiest water I ever saw. And uh, they started baptizing people. And they, they made their confession of faith before they were baptized, while standing in the water. And I remember this, this one man telling the story. He was Muslim. And he got married. He came to Christ. Started having children. And... Um, and happy grandparents, grandchildren. And he had to take a trip one day. He was gone for a few days, and when he was gone, his Muslim father-in-law came and burned down his house with, with his son-in-law's wife and children in it. Um, you're going to be a Christian in that kind of culture? I've told you about the brother. He lives in a Muslim vi- village, only Christian family in a Muslim village. He loves it there. And he is a lion with the gospel. And they respect him. 
They respect him. But he knows. He knows. He told me one day. He said, I, I praise God for where he's placed me. And I said, tell me why. Why? And he said, they haven't burned down my home. They haven't killed my children. They haven't stolen my cow. These are the things he's concerned about. What are you concerned about? Nobody's going to burn your cow or steal your cow, right? Burn down your house. One of the brothers over there who is a leader in that church in the city that I typically travel to, often travel to, his wife was at home. He lives in a high-rise. He's on the second floor, and the Muslims came and set his balcony on fire with gasoline, sprayed it through the window into the house, and set their apartment, their flat, ablaze. And his wife were in it. I mean, it could have taken down that whole tower. And uh, she tried to put the fire out and couldn't, grabbed her children and ran out, and the neighbors were so concerned their houses were going to be consumed, they all ran in and put the fire out. But they lost probably half of what they owned. You know, it's not that way for us here in America. It's so easy, so easy to claim you're, you're a Christian. And it'll be so devastating, I think, on the day we see Jesus face to face, how many people who have attended our churches for years and years and years were here for other reasons than love of Christ. And so we don't feel the weight, we don't feel the need to fight, to fight for faith. But if we're sensitive to our own sin, we will. It's a contest. It's like a wrestling match, Paul will say. It's like a marathon. It's, it's like warfare. It's like farming. It's just hard. It's hard work. Our baptism services are, kind of reflect that Old Testament, I mean, that, that, uh, that first century motif in that we too have our people stand publicly and declare who they once were and what God did for them, and how their life has changed since. It is their confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that they believe Jesus is their Messiah and Savior. And that's what Timothy did in his home church in Derby or in Lystra. Acts says both. Maybe there were two churches. Maybe it was like Calvary and Living Hope. And maybe not really sure which one you belong to. It was there that Timothy entered the contest. It was there that he became a soldier of Jesus Christ. In fact, turn the page to the right with me just a moment in, back in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and look at verses 3 and 4. Here's verse 2, which is so well known to us. What you have heard is Paul talking to Timothy. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now listen to this. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete, notice the change of metaphor, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer, notice again, stress on hard work, the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first Share of the crops. And then he says, think over this. I'm not going to explain it. Uh, the Spirit will help you understand. And I think the Spirit has. And Paul does this again and again and again in his letters. Listen, your sanctification is not like uh, leaving the main road and getting into an inner tube and floating down the lazy river from there on. You don't leave the hard road and get into Christianity and just float. In fact, in some sense, your fight is going to be more difficult now that you're a child of God. Because there is a, there is a Christ to follow. A Christ who suffered in your place. A Christ who calls you to suffer with him. Not to earn your salvation, but rather as a reflection of who he is in this world. As he suffered, so you will suffer. And, and so Peter says, don't think your suffering in this life is anything remarkable. It's not. You're a Christian. You're a child of God. You're living in a sinful world. This is a Genesis 3 world. This is not the kingdom. This is not heaven. This is not church. It's why we love coming to church. It's a little taste of heaven. Or it should be. But while we're in this world, 
It's a fight. It's a battle. It's a battle against temptation. We have to flee certain things every day. We have to fly to, pursue, follow certain things every day. And in the middle of that, we need to get, we need to get fighting. We need to dive into the contest. And we need to take it seriously. On the need to fight for sanctification, John Piper writes these words, the Christian life in the first place is a warfare. It is a struggle. We wrestle, quoting Paul. There is no grosser or greater misrepresentation of the Christian message than that which depicts it as offering a life of ease with no battle and no struggle. The teaching which gives the impression that the pathway to glory is all easy and simple and smooth is not Christianity. It is not Paul's Christianity. It is not New Testament Christianity. It is the hallmark of the quack remedy which always offers a cure for everything that is so easy. One dose and there is no more trouble. That is not the Christianity that Paul knew or that Jesus knew or that any of the apostles knew. The contest Timothy was involved in was a contest for, um, for the church of Ephesus that was floundering. He had to battle for other people, yes, but more importantly, it was a contest for his own spiritual integrity. It was a contest for his own relationship with Christ, his own fellowship with Christ, his own holiness, his own purity, his own righteousness, his own goodness, his own love, his own faithfulness, his own perseverance. And faithfulness was going to be demanding. It'd be like a serious wrestling match against a worthy opponent. In fact, there were three opponents and still are, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I'm always hesitant to blame the devil. I think if we're talking about Satan, he's got other things. He's not omnipresent. He's got bigger fish to fry than me. But there are his minions who provoke us and try to tempt us. And there's the world that is constantly barraging us with every conceivable kind of temptation. And all of it rooting back to the love of money. And then then even if we could escape all of that, as I said earlier, well, I still have my heart. I still have my flesh. I still have my flesh. You ever sat having your quiet time, your devotions, whatever you call it, and you're sitting there and you're reading the Word, getting ready to pray, and the thought flashes in your mind that you think, oh my word, where did that come from? That was vile. And you think, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? Can I, just, can I just encourage you to think differently about that? Might it be a demon? Hmm. Maybe. Can't verify that. More than likely, it's my own heart. It's my own heart. There are external temptations and there are internal temptations. And the internal temptations, they come from my own heart. When that happens, when a thought comes to your mind, an image comes to your mind, or maybe it's, a, it's, a, it's an anxiety that comes to mind, right? I know some of you think that's your spiritual gift. It's sin. Um, <laughs> just a worrier. <laughs> Flee. It's a good example, right? Flee, follow, fight. Those three things. But we tend to think, oh, I don't know where that came from, but it wasn't from me. Obviously, it wasn't from me. I mean, I'm more holy than that. The reality is my heart is wicked. My heart has not yet been fully transformed. And in those cases, what do you do? Yeah, yeah, I find myself sometimes praying, Lord, I don't know where that came from. I mean, I don't know what the original source of it was, but I know this, there isn't anything around me that's tempting me. TV's not on. It's early morning, still dark. I mean, I'm not in the grocery store. I'm not in, in the magazine aisle. I'm, I'm not thinking about someone, you know, that I've had a hard relationship with. I'm not, you know, none of that stuff's going on. And here this thought comes to my mind, Lord, I can only, 
I can only conclude that that came from me. It came from my heart. Oh God, cleanse me. Cleanse me. Wash my feet. Create in me a pure heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. And you know what? I find in those moments when that happens, my time with the Lord is so much fresher and wonderful than it was before that, when I was just reading. Sometimes it's just reading. Sometimes it's just praying. But sometimes it's when God reveals the uh, vileness of my heart and I fly to Christ that I recall once again how precious it is to be forgiven, to be eternally and completely forgiven. But we do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the question in every spiritual battle is this, will I trust in the promises and the wisdom of God or will I trust rather in my own impulses and feelings? In every temptation, I must fight for faith. I must do battle against my natural unbelief, against the world that tells me that I'm a fool and against the devil who always declares that God cannot be trusted and against my flesh, which is up one minute and down the next. This is the fight of faith. What you fight for in the contest against lust is faith in God's promise that the pure of heart having a pure heart is infinitely more blessed than engaging in some kind of sexual immorality. What you fight for when you're tempted in, toward anger and rage is faith in God's promise, which is that, that the hand of providence is always sovereign in every circumstance. Therefore, I can act believingly, Trusting that no matter what my circumstances, I am in God's place and I am moving at God's pace. And somehow, by the power of grace, this trial is good for me. That's the battle of faith. If you ever never talk to yourself like that, you're probably not in the battle. If you never ask yourself questions like David did, why are you cast down, oh my soul? Who's he talking to? Himself. You're not crazy if you talk to yourself as long as you're speaking truth. Why are you cast down? Why are you, why are you tempted by lust right now? Why are you angry, oh my soul? Why do you feel so abandoned, oh my soul? Why do you feel so frustrated at this traffic light, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. That's the fight. That's the battle. Flee, follow, fight. Flee, follow, Fight. Right? You, you, you just, uh, my kids love, love to listen to, and okay, I confess I do too, uh, the um, Rangers Apprentice series and their sword fighting and, and all this stuff. And when they're practicing, they're giving them instructions like that, you know, with the sword. That's what Paul is doing. Flee, follow, fight. Flee, follow, fight. It's how we engage. You want to be growing in Christ? It's what you do. It's not the only thing you do, but it's what you do. It's what you do. This is the fight of faith. It's the fight of faith. And um, fight the good fight of faith, and notice what he says, taking hold of eternal life. The word take hold here means get a firm grip on He's not saying that Timothy should get saved over again. Eternal life, right? He's not saying that he is to receive the Holy Spirit again. It's not what he's saying. He's not worried that Timothy would lose his salvation somehow. No, he's saying the life that you already have in Jesus is the life you need to empower you to persevere faithfully in every spiritual contest until you receive the prize at the end. Take hold of eternal life. It means every day, you have eternal life. Take hold of it. Take hold of it, Timothy. You have it. It's like I remember the first time I realized what sufficiency of Scripture meant. And I realized, I was like, I looked at my Bible for the first time and thought, oh my word, I, I had no idea how powerful this was. And Paul's saying, take hold of what you have, Timothy. You have eternal life. You have union with Christ. And all of the things that God has given to you, 
He's given to you through him. You already have it, read Ephesians 1. Take hold of eternal life. You can be a true believer and just, you know, at least for a while, be floating down the lazy river. And, and temptation is, and, is assaulting you and you're, you're not fleeing, you're not following, you're not fighting, you're just getting whipped. And Paul is saying, flee, follow, fight, and where am I going to get the wherewithal to do that? Take hold of eternal life. You have Christ. You have Christ. He's all you need. And he is the only power you have by his spirit. You know, eternal life is not something for um, the sweet by and by. Um, you young people don't know what that's a reference to, but that's okay. Um, it's not something that you simply get at heaven. in heaven. You have eternal life. You have the life of Christ flowing in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here Paul is saying, you are not apart from him, Timothy. You can do everything. Or as Paul himself said in Philippians, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Listen, beloved, eternal life is not simply something that God is going to give you on the day you see him face to face. You already have it. Don't let that reality slip your mind when you're in the fight. Timothy needed to flee from temptation. He needed to follow or pursue the righteous virtues of the Holy Spirit. He was to fight for faith in the context, in a contest against unbelief by renewing his mind about what eternal life offers believers this side of heaven. In closing, let me, let me just ask you a question. Um, is, your, is your growth in Christ an active thing? Is it an active thing? Or have you just been, maybe recently you've just been passive? Not good. If you're being passive, you're probably being inundated by temptations and you're probably giving in to sin that maybe, maybe nobody's picked up on yet. If you're a man, your wife probably has, but she doesn't know what it is. Are you actively engaged? Are you fleeing? Are you following? Are you fighting by the power of the Spirit? It might help to remember that all the parts of the armor of God, right? The truth, the righteousness, the hope of salvation, the faith, right? The shield, the belt, the, the sword, the helmet, the shoes. All of those are different components of the gospel. They're all different components of the gospel. He's not saying the gospel plus something else. He's saying the gospel in its broader sense. Paul's not calling Timothy or us to accomplish anything apart from the power of Christ or his gospel. It is the power that is wielded for our joy by grace through faith. And I, and I would say this in addition. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, the message I hope you're hearing is that Jesus is worth it. And not only that, but Jesus, Jesus is, is more wonderful and amazing than I imagined him to be. And Christianity is a lot more practical than I thought. You may be hesitating to place your whole trust in Jesus to confess your sins to him, to ask him to save you based on the merits of Christ alone and, and not on any of yours, because you don't have any. But you can't help thinking about all the stuff you'll lose. And I would remind you that one day you're going to lose all of it anyway. You brought nothing into this world, you will take nothing out of it. We saw that a couple weeks ago. But in this life, you can have everything. You can have everything. You can have everything that God has promised you in Jesus Christ. And when you get it, when you get it, you will look at all that other stuff and go, as my, you'll say, as my father did, what, what was I thinking all these years? What was I thinking? When Jesus comes into your life, anything that you may lose in this life is infinitely worthless by comparison to a living relationship with the glorious God who created you for his own pleasure and for your joy. But the only way you'll ever discover that for yourself is to come to him. Why not today?
Let's pray. Lord, we learned once again today that in God's household, people flee from sin, they follow virtue, they fight for faith, and they do it by taking hold of eternal life. Father, may that be true of us. People around us won't see it outwardly, but we will know that by your grace, you're giving us everything we need to grow in Christ, less of me, more of him. And that means greater joy and less chaos in my heart. Oh, Father, we praise you for these things. Somehow you are glorified in it all, which is ultimately why you do it. And so we thank you that you have so ordered things that while glorifying yourself in us, we get the benefit and the joy of it all. And so we thank you and we praise you for it. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen.